I'm just such a jerk. I mean, why do I always pick the wrong guy? I mean, I'm... I'm so trusting and so gullible. I mean, I don't know why I'm such a pushover. I mean, I'm such a sucker. Mm. Mm. I just mm, love a pretty face. Oh, it's, oh, it's so embarrassing. Oh, oh, I better lie down. Oh, you're nothing but trouble. Welcome to part two of our Nothing But Trouble episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect in their exclusive patron feed, and we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Uh, Ryan and Bartek decided to step out, just kind of cool down, because I think they know that the conversation that's that's coming about nothing but trouble, the real conversation with our real feelings, might get heated, as it tends to happen whenever we have them over on the show. Um, that's fine. While they're doing that, here's out about what happens on our Patreon. First off, QVRs, Alex, you are doing The Raid, a uh, mm-hmm. popular action movie that you haven't seen. Uh, so Sam Hurley, who seems to throw movies your way that have to do with uh, fighting, wrestling, grappling, he picked right. I think that you are more likely to enjoy The Raid than I would. I'll take it. As for me, he gave me Leave No Trace, which is a movie with Ben Foster and a little girl that I guess it's his daughter in the movie. I don't know much about it. Just know it was critically acclaimed from what I remember back back in I don't know, 2018, 2017, whenever it came out. And so you'll be getting my quick video review of that and Alex's quick video review of The Raid. Now, as far as December's bonus episode, uh, we actually have two. One... The aforementioned Ryan has given us the movie Fateful Findings. Uh, I don't know what this is, Alex, but he I could just imagine him giggling as he was sending that message. Uh, I, I've never heard of Fateful Findings. I have kind of heard of Neil Breen, the filmmaker behind it. And uh, I don't know. I, I kind of get the feeling this is, is an indie weird movie. We'll, we'll find out. And then we'll tell you all about it in the Patreon channel. And we will also have, uh, to be disclosed later... Christmas episode, we we did the oh, math yes. and we realized that yeah we we can do it we we have time to record and edit and put something out on Christmas Day. I'm not gonna reveal it yet, but let's just say that it's gonna be very different from our last uh, Patreon Christmas episode, which was the Muppets Christmas Carol. We're gonna we're gonna take a left turn on this one. Just uh, stay tuned for for that announcement. And then we have, of course, Contrarians After Hours, which. Alex, before we announce what we're doing for this After Hours, I just want to say that it's very appropriate that we are uh, discussing this of the After Hours to an episode where Ryan is one of our guests. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you want to do the honors? What are we talking about on this After Hours? He just has like such vitriol and anger <laughs> centered <laughs> towards it. So he'll be mad like when he hears this in real time, but... Uh... In light of our recent Star Trek episode, 
the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Hulu and I decided we'll go back and revisit Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond, just kind of wrapping up that trilogy there. And uh, having both seen all three movies before and kind of revisiting, because I think some of our thoughts about the 2009 one came to light in a positive way, and we wanted to see if those other ones held up. So we'll be dedicating an entire After Hours to discussing the modern Star Trek trilogy. But that's not all. In addition to that, uh, we are going to be, I guess this is still connected. We're going to be talking about a classic Star Trek movie, uh, the OG crew. Captain Kirk comes back to the Contrarians, this time to the patron channel. Uh, Because I think, Alex, that you cannot truly discuss Star Trek Into Darkness without discussing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So Accurate. We're going to do that. We're going to be talking about three Star Trek movies on this After Hours. Uh, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond. I don't know if it will be in that order. That That is to be figured out later. But be excited. I think that Ryan likes the OG crew and most of the OG movies. So hopefully at least that part of the After Hours uh, makes him happy. Um, I think that's part of it. I think he likes those and dislikes what we got recently yeah. because he likes those. Yep, yep. Uh, as many people do and don't. So that is your After Hours. And then, of course, the other things that we have on the every month on our Patreon channel, cutting room floor segments, all the stuff that doesn't make it into the episodes, our pre-recording notes, the Roxena epic, the Summer Break trilogy, all that good stuff. There is a wonderful search engine on our Patreon page that lets you just go back and see what else we've been throwing out there for the last two years that we've had a patron. So check it out. Go to patreon.com slash contrarian prime. Look at our tiers. See on what level you would like to contribute and join the contrarian supplements. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are respective tiers. Four quarters, as I say. 100 pennies, 20 nickels, 10 dimes. You know, just some pocket change. Uh, obviously, you can't just take it out of your pocket and throw it at us. But if you find that change, just think of it the same way as going on to patreon.com slash contrarian prime and subscribing for $1 just to take a look around and see all the things that we're talking about here, dating back all the way to our very first bonus episode, our uh, epic discussion on blue is warmest color and so much more since then. Uh, take a look around, see what it is you like, see what maybe you want some more of. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you think we're spending too much time on and could be using our resources elsewhere. Uh, it's there for you. That's why we do it. Be like Limp Biscuit. Take a look around. <laughs> uh, great tune. <laughs> much like with Limp Biscuit, though, you got to pay to play. So $1, just hand it over. You're going to like if you think this shit's good, just think of it. It's like the HBO of contrarians. There's no limits there. It's, <laughs> it's not regular podcasting uh, to all of our patrons past present and future we love you so dearly we continue to take applications so be sure to get on over there and fill one out all right julio business has been taken care of so i think it's time to get back to the weird with uh back into the twisted mind of dan Aykroyd. It it is nothing but trouble up there i think that's appropriate to say welcome to supper how about a nice hawaiian punch all right, I see Ryan and Bartek taking their seats at the studio. We're about to start this real talk roundtable about nothing but trouble. Uh, Alex, Ryan, Bartek. Julio. 
I'm going to stay quiet until, well, I'm going to read the quotes, but then after that, I, I want to go last. I want to hear what the three of you think, and then I'll chip in. You know it's going to be good because he did this last time we're on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, this film, Nothing But Trouble, a truly awful experience, as Roger Ebert said. <laughs> uh, I haven't gotten too far. Today was kind of a clusterfuck, so I wasn't able to watch the entirety of that video you sent along, Ryan, but I, I will finish it because... Um, I mean, cards on the table. I feel like the making of this movie is way more interesting than, or likely way more interesting than what we ended up with. Uh, but it was released, it was scheduled for a Halloween release in 1990, but it was originally like, um, uh, from my understanding of my research, a bit more graphic and more of like a, you know, slasher esque type horror movie, and it tested poorly with initial audiences. So they went back to like recut it to make it less violent, and then that pushed the release date back further, you know, to Valentine's Day, which again, fascinating. But historically, you know, horror movies have done well on Valentine's Day. So that, that works out. Uh, I got to wonder what it would have done had it had the Halloween release because it didn't do shit <laughs> historically doesn't apply to this because with a $40 million budget, it made uh, less than 9 million back. It looks like the number cited here was 8.4 million. So a um, disappointing box office return uh, in the IMDb trivia. This made me laugh because, you know, I called it out, but uh, though Brian Doyle Murphy is listed in the opening credits, he does not appear until over an hour in the film. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. I'm fine with that. Another thing about the budget, too, is something to consider. This was Warner Brothers, correct? I do believe. Mm-hmm. At this time, Warner Brothers were financing weird stuff. So let's give our Batman movie to the weird goth guy who's made nothing but comedy films thus far, Tim Burton, and we got a mega success. That film had less of a budget than Nothing But Trouble. So Nothing But Trouble is a thing where it makes sense business-wise at that time. Dan Aykroyd's a well-known name. He gave us Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, Blues Brothers, and he has a strange idea, and we're up for doing strange ideas. And... We got the broad from Ghost in this? Let's fucking go. (laughs) Yes, yes. She had just finished filming Ghost, so it was not yet that mega success, because let's not forget, Ghost was a surprise hit. That's right. Good call. So they couldn't even bank on, oh, we got the chick from Ghost when they were casting it. They were just like, oh, she's the best person we can get. Interestingly enough, here also in the IMDb trivia, on January 16th, 1991, a billboard for the film on Sunset Boulevard replaced an ad for another recent Warner Brothers critical and commercial failure, The Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes, Uh, there's a big trivia point about The Bonfire of the Vanities. I don't know if you have it in your notes at all. I have it on mine. I have it in my head. Uh, Because I I did watch the video, and uh, I I thought it was fascinating. It just... I, I'm going to concur with Alex in just early on in one thing, and that is that I would love to see, I mean, I, I'm, I, it doesn't exist and I don't think it will ever exist, but uh, a behind the scenes, you know, oral history of the making of this movie. We, uh, now have a, we now have a Blu-ray, so maybe it has those special features. I want the Dan Aykroyd commentary track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously I'm not, I don't think that there exists footage of, you know, people making this movie and uh but you know just to be a fly on the wall on the conversations not just during production like on on set but also the studios and just the idea that the, the buffer of this thing alex is just that they were already dealing with a, a trouble production with the bonfire of the vanities which meant that they couldn't really give nothing but trouble as much attention as they probably should have 
<laughs> so that's how that aggregated so up. it got to balloon in budget. Exactly. So nothing but trouble went five million over. It just got bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier. They were going to deal with it, but then Brian De Palma and Bruce Willis were duking it out in uh, Bonfire of the Vanities too much for the studio to pay attention to Dan Aykroyd's little fire burning. I loved all those trivia points. I was like, please, please stop making us give you more money, but they could never deal with it because they had to deal with something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the uh, production head told Dan Aykroyd to stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding, yeah. Uh, lots of money was spent on toasters and broken down cars displayed out of the mansion. It was worth it. In fact, it. the mansion itself was at 90 feet tall and the town of Vulcanizer was filmed at various sound stages at Warner Brothers. Now, I already know Ryan likes this movie more than me. I don't know where Bartek stands, uh, but it is important and it is imperative and crucial uh, to call out three words to mean the same thing here early for all the things we've talked about so far. And we're laughing at the shit about like Warner brothers taking risks with Batman and stuff. And then this movie being made and given the money it was from a major studio, it categorically used to be better. Like this is like this is an example of what I mean when I say I miss these days of filmmaking because it was like God. You don't it, get comedies you know, like this. You don't get a comedy film with this scale, with this level of artistry on the screen. You get a Judd Apatow movie where it's like just film them. And it's hard to around. like honestly watching this. It, it literally at one point it was towards the end where I was like. I can't foresee a scenario where something like this gets made like by and, you know, financed and made by a major motion picture for like a theatrical release because, you know, we're just going more and more and more to the way of anything that would be comparable to this nowadays would almost in certainly have like it would be straight to streaming and that type of well, thing. Well, I think so, there are a few people that would pull it off. But of course, I don't think that they'd be interested in it. Like, you know, if Christopher Nolan decided that he wanted to make a movie like this, I think that he would get theatrical release. I don't know that they would be successful, but... Well, I guess, I mean, this movie's like Nothing But Trouble or why we don't do it this way, but <laughs> just the things we're joking about and talking about, like, there was even still into the 90s this Wild West mentality of film studios of just like, fuck it, make it and see what happens. <laughs> That's how and, we go you know, Wild Wild West, for instance, well, where that movie's <laughs> like a, good a gargantuan... <laughs> That's a gargantuan, insane concept where one of the producers who produced on Batman was like, I want a big spider, put it in the movie. And they found a way to put it in. And, to, and that's to an Alex's, example of like, uh, it did always <laughs> used to why be the system changed. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like why the system changed. Yeah. You're like, well, we can't, we can't keep doing this shit anymore. But it was, but it was fun. Like yes. uh, how many comedy movies, even creative ones, do you see this level of artistry on the screen? Like, for instance, I was thinking something comparable to this, say a horror comedy playing around with the tropes and conventions of these movies is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Great little yeah. film. That's exactly it. It's a great little film. It's not grand. It's not big. It doesn't have this elaborate set design and all of this massive talent. It's, it's quite an ugly looking movie because it's cheap. And they have to evoke the things that we know from these old movies quickly and effectively. But here you have Dan Aykroyd given all the money in the world to unload his insanity on the screen. And it is, it's a lot to take in. Well, since you're all having a whirl of a time on some kind of a hopped up date, I believe that we can get this all over relatively simply and have you people on your way. So step forward to the bench, please. It's, you know, there's... Halloween four was one I was talking about the other day and like just similar to this of the sense of just like 
Yeah, build these massive stages. You know, we got to these movies that we watch now and we're like, well, this is kind of silly, but we're given not necessarily carte blanche, but the idea of we're going to make this like it's a movie. So you have all these people that are going to be here to make these fucking sets for you and you're going to use these sound stages and. You know, and I'm already starting just bleeding over into my, I don't really find, to me, that you can't compare shooting everything in front of a big green wall to the level of filmmaking of something like this. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that, one, anyone who's ever listened to this podcast knows that's how I feel, and two, uh, I think I have some backup this time around, and Julio's (laughs) not just going to be like, it's all the same. No, what I would uh, say, Alex, is that if this movie was a 2022 release... And you were just, yeah. you felt exactly the same way about it as you do now because, you know, you just watched it, you experienced it the same way. And then somebody told you, you're going to blow your mind, Alex. None of that was practical. That was all CGI. Okay. So this is like Julio's argument he always <laughs> makes. And we'll get off this <laughs> quickly here. But, gentlemen, uh, <laughs> I feel that no matter how, he said, as long as it looks good, it doesn't matter. I think we're adults and we can say, <laughs> You can tell when something is practical versus CG. Yes, I will use this example of a movie that I rather enjoyed a lot, but I will never watch it again because my tolerance for the falsehood of it will not stand up on a rewatch. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. That is one of those where you have all this CG attached to what should be just a normal movie, (laughs) a normal story, and it isn't. And so it's bizarre, but I just want to also flag up Something that I really love about Nothing But Trouble is you got masters of the crafts that they're in working on this movie. While I feel like today we all look at it as the director, writer, actors. Yeah, Here we're yeah. going to talk about the cinematographer or the makeup artist or the set design people or the editor or the music music people because not only are they pros of their field and people with a large catalog of work, but you have to talk about them because you see it on the screen. Their individual modes, like I'm sure that uh, all of us who have been familiar with Dean Cundy's work can see it in this movie. The cinematography in this movie and the lighting in this movie does harken back to a lot of his films. And it's like, do you get that in the Marvel movies where it's like, oh, they're all gray. And do you know who the lead CGI person is that's responsible for Hulk? No, because yeah, it's, it's millions uh, of them who get chewed through. I'm kidding. I, I just oh, made up. Sh- <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I was going to say, you could be lying and I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, the music too is a good call. Uh, Michael Kamen, who had a loaded 91. So he did nothing but trouble. Hudson Hawk, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Company Business, Let Him Have It, The Last Boy Scout. What a what a lineup for that year, man. Yeah, but okay. But yeah. you're distorting my point. And I, I, I promise this is like the end of it and then we can just move on. But I, so what I was saying is that the I always say I like good practical effects. I like good CGI. If you can tell if if whether it's practical or, or CGI, you know, if it's taking you out of the movie, like The Irishman or like a bad a special effect on a Marvel movie or whatever, then it doesn't work. It's not doing its job. But that doesn't have to do with it being practical or or or, or digital. That just has to do with, you know, it being not executed properly. I think that... Oh, well, that's also, like, we, you know, I find things like the... You know, I find, like, Tom Savini's work charming. Like, and you you know, yes. you would be the first one to say that doesn't look real. So no, 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 but like, I think that it, it takes it, me it, out of it. Uh, it fits in with what Tom Savini's doing. You know, like, if you're making, you know, 
Dawn of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead, you know, whatever. Like, it fits that aesthetic, and so it works. And but I think that there are times where you're watching a movie and whatever the the FX is, you know, it can take you out because you you know the Irishman is a really good example. I love the movie; like, I think it's really good. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, it just doesn't work the, the, when it comes to special effects. It's just the technology is not there, and I think that that happens a lot. But I just I'm not so easy to write off CGI, you know, versus practical. I just to me, it's like a good special effect is a good special effect. I think yes, that... Yes, I, I think there's a perfect world where you blend the two together. Right. Hence, Terminator yeah. 2 still stands up all of these years later because it's mm-hmm. a mixture of CG and practical effects. We'll actually get a guy with one arm to do this one shot, and you won't even know that there's a difference because we're that dedicated to it. But we're still using CGI that was revolutionary for the time. There's a place for it, but I love that we're talking about this for nothing but trouble because, again, <laughs> it highlights no, no, it really highlights the point of one of the takeaways from this movie, which is its production. You see mm-hmm. it, you feel it. You never are thinking to yourself, oh, this isn't real. Like, you're like, they got these big lumberjack statues and put them in this dirt. They got this toaster and then this one. You know, you know that they did these things. And they built just, Mr. Bone Stripper. <laughs> they built Mr. Bone Stripper. Yeah. And they got Digital Underground and not some CGI recreation of them. <laughs> but see, they didn't get, no, they didn't get the uh, hologram. It's Digital oh, Underground. Yeah, Coachella too. It's not practical underground. Ah. <laughs> oh, thank you. You son of a bitch. I came for the party to get naughty, get my rocks on, eat popcorn, watch you move your body till the pop's on, and I'm singing, ding-a-linging, funky beats ringing, everybody swinging in the place as I kick the Jay-Z. 13% of Rotten Tomatoes, um, both a critical and uh, financial, uh, I guess you could almost call it a disaster, but at, at minimum a flop. So what were the 13% that were in favor of this thing? Roger Ebert not being one of them, but what are those that were... Uh, what did they bring to the table? What were their thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, if I understand correctly, Ebert wouldn't even write a review for it, right? He just went on that rant on his show, and that was it. Because he's definitely not among the quotes uh, that I looked up. Uh, but I found three fresh tomatoes. So we're going to start with Mike McGranagan from Isle Seat, who says, underrated dark comedy. Short and simple, yes. straight to the point. I thought he was going to say it was Michael Hankey again. And I'm like, oh, that Hankey is back with one of his reviews. He's actually flip-flopped. He's like, actually, guys, after my snippy review before, I, I like nothing but trouble. Uh, next, Nick Rogers from Midwest Film Journal says, a calamity by most objective measures, at best a paltry comedy. And yet, and yet, the relentlessly repugnant energy here ceases to desist while you're watching and continues to persist long after you've stopped. A perversely fascinating bomb. This fresh. That was a positive <laughs> review, by the way. That yeah. was a positive <laughs> review, by the way. <laughs> it's like it bombed and it's repugnant, but you know, I couldn't stop watching. Um, and finally, Peter Zobzinski from The Spool says, Nothing but trouble is a shot of pure weirdness that is so far off the beaten comedic path that it does exert a strange fascination that cannot be denied. You may love it or hate it, but either way, you won't forget it. I agree with that. I agree with that last part. I Truth. I don't foresee ever forgetting nothing but trouble. <laughs> some movies come and go, <laughs> uh, and some just stay with you uh, because they're just so unlike most of the things you watch. So 
if nothing else, when somebody says nothing but trouble, I'll instantly recall my experience watching it and probably this conversation as well. The absolute worst thing you can ever say about a movie, and this has come up on our show before, Julio, when we do like recaps for our year or awards and shit. The absolute worst thing about a movie or like that tells you the state of it is if you've watched it, time has gone by and you literally can't remember a single thing about it. And uh, nothing but trouble will not be one of those, you know, <laughs> barring any sort of traumatic head injury 10 years from now, when, like this movie comes up, I'll be like, yeah, that movie that fucking Tupac shows up in and Dan Aykroyd like takes his nose off. It's fucking wild. Yeah. But uh, nothing but trouble. Unfortunately, it's a negative reputation did bleed over into the golden raspberry. So quickly to run down, it was nominated for worst picture uh, lost to Hudson Hawk. Uh, worst actress to me more who lost out to Sean Young Ooh. in a kiss before dying. Uh, Dan Aykroyd won worst supporting actor. Could you imagine? Could you imagine it voting that he's awesome in this? Come on. He's, he's memorable. At least we've discussed this, uh, same year one for Hudson Hawk and two Oscar, uh, had several nominations. Sly got nominated. Marissa Tomei got nominated for worst supporting actress. Come on, y'all. Uh, and uh, John Candy as Eldona got nominated for Worst Supporting Actress. Well, I'm glad at least they got the gender right. Lost out to Sean Young because, you know, she plays twins in A Kiss Before Dying. So they <laughs> gave, gave it to her for both. Uh, Dan Aykroyd, Worst Director, but lost to Michael Lehman for Hudson Hawk. Uh, Hudson Hawk won Worst Screenplay, which Nothing But Trouble was also nominated for. And um, yeah, so the... Nothing but trouble. Hudson Hawk and Cool as Ice, the Vanilla Ice movie, dominated the uh, <laughs> the running that year. But um, you know, it's not okay. So when I read that Dan Aykroyd was making a movie that he said was like Beetlejuice mixed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was like, oh really? Because like watching it, I was like, <laughs> I read that afterwards, and my in my notes I have like Texas Chainsaw, and then like especially the dinner scene I was like, this is just Beetlejuice. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. I think that's the my interest in this movie goes beyond what I saw on the screen. Like just the idea that Dan Aykroyd is in his crazy life, you know. Uh, fucking weirdo just took the time at one point just to kind of sit down and write this and you know till the end of time any of that original SNL cast any of the things they went on to do I will always have like a uh, some level of interest in just because you know that's a comedy crew literally unlike any other that's ever lived so that's always been fascinating to me Um, memorable is a good word I don't know in a good way I just feel it's I don't know. I can't put my finger on exactly why, what I don't like about it. I feel it's just kind of there. Mm. I think the chemistry between Chevy Chase and Demi Moore is not particularly strong. I think Demi Moore gives way more to this movie than she should yep. have. Uh, but like you, <laughs> like you said, it was still, uh, if she filmed this while Ghost had just come out, then she didn't really know her level of star yet. And also, a criticism you can make of Demi Moore was she was an actress with a lot of potential that made some shit and then just kind of stopped. I don't want to say stop trying. That sounds really callous, but you know what I mean? Like she had this level of like promise at one point and yes. then by like the early two thousands, it just kind of seemed completely gone. Well, and strip it was te- just striptease killed it. That's, that's what killed her career. Most likely that was everyone 96. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that because by the time the two thousands came around, she just my thought has always been she got roles just because she's she's Demi Moore. She was Bruce Willis's wife. Now, yeah, now she's in this movie. Uh, it fucking Charlie's Angels too, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, I think Mr. Brooks is kind of an interesting movie for some of the reasons we've talked about it, about this because it's just so fucking random. But in that, she's just like also give me my check. I'm ready to get out of here. But uh. So for this, I think I'm curious your thoughts, Ryan and Bartek also, because obviously I've seen Ryan gave it four stars on Letterboxd and uh, my interest in this goes beyond what we see as far as the actual movie itself. It it feels kind of just disjointed and uh, kind of repetitive, but it also exists in the vacuum of just insane late eighties, early nineties filmmaking. So Ryan, uh, actually let's start with Bartek and we'll come back to Ryan. So Bartek, what are your thoughts yeah, on the this? man who wrote the haiku? Let's, let's go with him. <laughs> the man who wrote the haiku. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, to be honest, your thoughts right there and the positive reviews that Julio read before kind of bleed into my opinion of the film as well. Um, but I guess there's a certain, a subgenre, I don't know if even subgenre is the right word for it, but a certain catalog of type of film that this film kind of uh, points toward that Ryan and I really enjoy that mm. we haven't mentioned before. And I guess that the umbrella term for it would be so bad it's good. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Interesting. I, I already disagree with you. But I, okay. I, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that is what this film is. Mm. Um, I'm just saying that a lot of the things that I like about it kind of point towards that uh, sphere. Because when we talk about those kinds of films, the ones that we like the most are sort of like The Room and Troll 2, where it's like there is a certain uh, central creator around the film. And uh, a lot of the appeal that I get from this film is the fact that we are seeing this creator put so much forth um, and that there's this huge entertaining value to it where we see things are going wrong um, or things are not going as intended, um, but also that there's a certain certain purity to what we are getting because I love all the trivia points where it mentions like, you know, in the past, Dan Aykroyd, uh, you know, has made scripts like apparently I think it was for Ghostbusters. He made like a phone book site or was Blues it Blues Brothers? Brothers. Yeah. Blues Brothers are like phone book size script and it had to be stripped back. Whereas this time. Nobody stripped him back. No one Nobody said no, This is what happens when you don't strip him back. <laughs> Nobody said why. Like, why do you need giant babies, Dan? Why do you need him? Yeah. So the, the purity on that. But also I think at the beginning of Contrarian's Corner, I think Julio said something along the lines of. You know, this is a film that there is certainly a lot to talk about, and I just find this film really, really fun to talk about overall. So, in preparation for this episode, you know, I didn't really do any research or anything like that. Just for like the past week or two, occasionally, I when I would talk to someone, you know, at work or with friends, I would say, "Hey, have you heard of Nothing But Trouble?" And I would just recount, you know, what I remember from when we did it a couple of years ago. It's like, oh, yeah, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And here are some of the reasons for it behind the scenes. And I would just have a lot of fun talking about that and seeing their reactions. So when I watch the film, obviously, there's a lot of things wrong with it, um, even though there are a lot of things going for it. Like we mentioned, like a lot of the production behind it is fantastic. You know, we've got the the makeup, costumings, the location. Um, so it's a film that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say is a great film in a, you know, t- 
typical sense, but it's just a film that I really enjoy watching and talking about. And if I win, I get Diane. <laughs> no, little devil. I grew up with this movie. It was just one of those, my parents, oh, this is on DVD now, let's buy it on DVD, and now we have nothing but trouble. And I genuinely enjoy it. Now, I don't think it's so bad, it's good. I think it is wildly creative. Like, this is somebody whose creativity is just so so out there you can't help but be fascinated by it you can't it's 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 yeah i i do think it's very funny though i think a part of the humor is the fact that it just keeps going like it just keeps <laughs> unraveling and the insanity and i and i do not say this ironically or even lightly but the texas chainsaw massacre referencing that we've done throughout all of this this is very similar to me with that, but this is a comedy film where Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the few horror films where I do feel the insanity that just unfolds as we get into this grimy world where you even get a feeling whoever made this movie must be sick. While here with Dan yes. Aykroyd, it's like whoever made this movie has so much in their brain and they just don't know how to get it out there properly but i i admire it i like it i think it is genuinely funny i do get a lot of laughs at dan Aykroyd's performance another thing that i think has made this one of your favorite films that we've done on our podcast bartek is we are drawn to the big performance in a movie whether it be paul giamatti in any film he's in whether it be <laughs> tim curry in any film he's in and here we have dan Aykroyd. dan Aykroyd, who i think for a lot of people they think of him as the 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 gentle giant of that comedy era. Where in Ghostbusters, he's he's the most normal one. He's kind of silly and lighthearted and a good natured guy. And you have other movies that prove otherwise. But like I think of Dan as that. While here, it's seeing him play this overt villainous character and he's having the time of his life. And the thing that I really appreciate too, because I have issues with Hollywood comedies. One of the things I really like is. For all of its faults, for all of its shortcomings, it's also really well thought out. Like, there's a lot of thought put into the history of this family, why they're doing the things they're doing, their location, and just setting up and paying things off in a way where it's not so overt. I, yeah, I just enjoy it. I think it's, I, I understand why people wouldn't like it. It's not one of those where I go, you don't like nothing but trouble, you're insane. But it's one where I go, you can't deny that it is memorable like this you you don't walk away from this going uh oh, whatever in a similar vein you have years later freddie got fingered where that's also <laughs> insane but he's on the opposite end where you get the feeling like you get the feeling with freddie got fingered it's made by someone begrudgingly who's annoyed <laughs> to be making a movie and it almost feels like a prank while here this is made with sincerity and a full open and honest heart and yeah, that's that's kind of where I land with nothing but trouble. Now we have uh, one person left who. Uh, <laughs> well, I have a question for you, much. Ryan, because I I I saw when I was writing my notes, my you know the the Brazilians had been on screen for for a little while now, and I wrote something on the lines of like this is this is just the stuff that Ryan likes. Like, do you find the Brazilians funny? Because I think maybe that <laughs> will determine how different we. I find. They're okay. I find the everything in Vulcanvania 
to be the stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I mean it in Contrarian's Corner. You start out the movie and it comes across like a normal movie. But once you start picking at it, it slowly becomes insane and disturbing. And just, it does have that genuine horror feel to it whilst not pushing it so overtly to now where it is just a horror with comedy in it. That's that's how I land on it. The Brazilians, they're fine. They're, they're okay by me. I, I don't hate them or love them. I'm indifferent about them, honestly. I, I, I prefer Bobo and Little Devil because they're just, <laughs> that. when that happens, you're really like, your jaw hits the floor and you're like, where are we going now? And they explain it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was relieved when they were gone, the Brazilians, uh, because that was the, the one thing that I think if they'd stuck around uh, for the rest of the movie, they would have had to either change dramatically or uh, or I would have just not enjoyed my time at all because it they were just grating. And, uh, uh, was it because they were speaking Spanish? Was that why? I mean, that, that kind of annoyed me a little bit, but that's, I mean, that's just me being... Uh, Pedantic. You know, I like, noticed that you're not calling them the Brazilianaires. <laughs> Probably I should have. At some point in the back of my head, I said, you know, they never said they were Brazilians. They just said that they made their money in Brazil. So it's possible these are these guys are from Puerto Rico and they just happen to have all their investments in Brazil. <laughs> and that's how you explain it. Uh, no, that's not Julio it. Julio loves when people speak Spanish in movies. He's a big bedazzled fan starring <laughs> yeah. Fraser. Well, at least the accents, I mean, for Spanish. Yeah, that, that, that aspect is all wrong, but that's fine. It's just that the, the, the way that they're pitching the performance was just not, uh, it, it just didn't work for me. Um, but that is not, so I guess, first of all, I agree with a lot of, of what we've the, said so far. The, to just put a pin on the Brazilian air discussion, I, I forgot to mention, but I brought it up in Katrina's Corner, and the payoff legitimately was yes. one of my favorite parts of the movie, how they just like yes. run away with John Candy. That's yeah, that was, a, that was a good way to just kind of wrap up their story. That, that was that was fun. Uh, no, th- I, I think that before you know I even talk about the movie, I, I agree that – I agree with Alex, I, I, I guess – Barty, and I mean, I think that you feel this way too, uh, Ryan, which is that there is, um, independent of the movie, the making of the movie and the fact that it got made, I mean, I think that is something to uh, kind of treasure in a way, you know, that that, that it just, that this happened, <laughs> that somebody let that Aykroyd just run wild. Uh, yeah. It kind of sucks because I, I you know, I, I told you, I watched that video and I'll, we'll link to that video on the, on the site, but uh, at least according to the video, they posted that this was something that kind of removed Dan Aykroyd from being an A-lister because he was just such a massive bomb. And, you know, from then on, he just became kind of like the supporting character and the supporting actor showing up in movies, and you know, but he was never given whatever power he had in Hollywood was greatly diminished by the experience, you know, the studio had with having him direct this movie and it just going over budget and flopping and all that stuff so that is a shame so in that Mm. sense it kind of feels weird to say that it's so great that he got to make it because in a way it just who knows what else we would have gotten from him if this you know if somebody had been there to kind of guide him and maybe rein him in a little bit so that this movie doesn't bomb so badly and then we get maybe another two or three movies written and directed by him and you know something with a little more discipline but whatever the case like i like that and i have massive amount of respect for the fact that he just this is not like a pre-existing ip or anything this is just like all from his brain he had a dream he recalled like a past incident he'd had while driving through america and and he just cobbled up this really weird fever dream of a movie that's awesome uh i think demi moore is great i she's my favorite out of 
you know, the main cast. I, I, I think that she is nah. the one that makes me laugh the most. I think that every time they cut to a reaction shot from her, she gets it. She's like right uh, on the right level. You know, it's like the Brazilians are too much mm. and Chevy Chase for me is too little. But Demi Moore is just right. She's just like, you know, the middle bed on the bear's house or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> she's she's fantastic. Uh, the middle bear. <laughs> the mama bear. The mama yeah. bear. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, just right, yes. But the I kind of had that that when Alex was talking about his experience with the movie and he was saying that he was having trouble figuring out why he didn't like it or why he didn't like it as much. I mean, I was having that as I was watching the movie because at first I was like, okay, the first, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes before we get to, to the inaccurate sound, I was like, this is just dull. And I was like, I really hope that the rest of the movie is not like this, right? And then my wishes were granted and the rest of the movie goes bananas. But even then, I was like, what is, why aren't I enjoying this as much as I should? And I think at least on my end, I think that I just don't enjoy Chevy Chase's performance as much as uh, I would have to in order for this movie to be a win. Because uh, I think that it's very yeah. creative and it, it's, you know, they put in all the work. It looks great. But I just don't find it as funny. And I think I don't find it as funny because I don't find Chevy Chase as funny. In, in, you know, when you have Dan Aykroyd doing his inaccurate thing and being funny and then bouncing off Chevy Chase really underplaying, you know, 99% of his of his moments in the movie, it I, I don't know. I just I just wanted more. And I I don't think I don't know if it's in that video or I read it uh online when they were saying that at some point they had considered Rick Moranis for that role. And man, mm. just like reading that got me so excited. I was like, can you imagine Rick Moranis? Because I feel like I, Moranis is, you know, somebody. I that would can't. Really... I, I really, I really, I really can't imagine Rick doing it. He's just, he's just so sweet. You can't have him be this little sweetheart in this. You can't. You need an asshole. That's the point. But, like our main character, you can play an asshole. Unlikable. I mean, you know, it would be, it would be uh, against type. But I would like to see Rick Moranis yeah. playing against type instead of Chevy Chase, kind of like doubling down on a persona that he already, you know, had in the back. back yeah, in the but day. Chevy Chase was a big name. That's why they got him right. Like he's going to bring in the people. I would love. I would have loved Martin Short. Honestly, oh, yeah. he would have been my choice. The law firm, Master Glennett, Weiss, Weiss, Warple, Whitney. Yeah, that's the one. What's your specialty? Uh, investment syndication and public flotation. It's going to be painful. Would you like a drink? I wonder too, realistically, I, I do, I, I'm curious to hear what, what our contrarians have to say to this. If Dan Aykroyd was a well-known art house director like a David Lynch, would you even look at this as strangely? In another universe, if he still made this exact same film, but he had the aura of a David Lynch, would this be as, like, would this be weird? Like, would it still be as bizarre or would you just accept it like how we do with Blue Velvet? Well, okay. (laughs) Ryan. (laughs) Please don't compare Blue Velvet to Nothing But Trouble. But uh, I can. I can. Because it was also one of the touchstone points, as was Hellraiser, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, I'm not saying that he's David Lynch, but I'm saying it is the type of strange oddity that if you didn't have a specific auteur director writer making it, it, it loses that traction. It loses that thing because everyone thinks of Dan Aykroyd as funny guy, as Mr. Comedy, as Spies Like Us, Blues Brothers. Yet all of his scripts have always been weird. Like Ghostbusters is weird. Coneheads is weird. But this is a new level. And I, I do wonder, like, 
okay, here's a joke, Alex, but I think it's real. If Harmony Kareen made this movie today, <laughs> would you even bat an eye? <laughs> would you? There's still, there's, yeah, I mean, there's still shit in this that's like kind of novice style, like the the slides and like the falling and like uh, the Chevy Chase screaming when he sees the skeleton and like there's mm-hmm. some fart jokes and like the bedpan and stuff like that. There's still some like humor. I do like yeah. the bedpan, uh, by the way. Oh, I was not kidding. Oh, really? That that, that seems like uh, anti-Julio no, humor. No, like a single dress corner, I like how they use it as a prop in the fight. Like, that got me chuckling. Yeah, they expanded okay. it instead of it being a throwaway poop joke yeah. thing. They they used it for means, and that makes it more rewarding. But hey, David Lynch, he's very funny. His movies have lots of funny moments in it. Same with, like, tw- you, you say all of this, and I'm sitting there going, well, I've watched Twin Peaks The Return, where lots of the stuff <laughs> happens. But we accept it because he, he's a well-known auteur director, while Dan Aykroyd is like, he's a funny guy. Well, I, but I, I think, think that's I, like a part I would also argue that, like, there's a thing called dialogue, and, yeah. like, the, there's... Like the babies characters in this, I, I get, <laughs> I understand where you're coming from. I understand the the point you're making, and it's a very fair point. But there's still like elements to this that are very like it's a weird movie because it feels like some of the comedy in it is meant for kids, but it's obviously a movie that's like aimed towards adults. Mm. Um, and I don't know where that falls. It doesn't really, well, like you guys said, it doesn't seem like there was really too much studio meddling aside from. Stop spending so much money. Please stop. But Please wrap it, it, it up. Like, and a final edit. An edit yes. that was taken away, much like David Lynch's Dune. Just saying. <laughs> there you go. This is Isaac Ackroyd's <laughs> Dune. <laughs> this, this was the, the hill that Ryan figured out. He's like, I am going to make an analogy on a film podcast that has never been made before on a film podcast. <laughs> That's my bread. But no, I'm not being funny. I do mean, like, I, I wonder so often well, I with think- these... I think it would help. failures. I think it would help with the the overall reception. I mean, I think that as would it have bombed as hard if it was if it came out today and it was from David Lynch? No, probably because people going to see it would know what to expect. But as far as my personal enjoyment, if if I watched this movie not knowing who directed it and then it ended and it said written and directed by David Lynch, I'll be like. That doesn't feel like a David Lynch movie. <laughs> I feel like that's a that's a little you know it's it, it's got it's in the right direction, but there's is what Alex was saying. You know, th- there's a little uh, Lynch or Harmony Korine sensibilities. They're not quite the sensibilities that Dan Aykroyd is displaying here, and that's great because you know Aykroyd has yeah, a voice of his own. But this is but this is his first film, like first directorial writing credits, like. But he's already an established presence. So you already have that baggage. Like, if this was, and I, and I don't mean like he's David Lynch. I'm just using an he extreme. He didn't have a presence as a filmmaker, like I, he wrote, as a director. He wrote, yeah, that's I, what I'm saying. Like, he, he's written stuff, he's acted, he's already an established name in Hollywood. This is his first direction and only direction. Or someone like, you know, we can name all these other filmmakers. When they did their weird little fucked up film that maybe is great <laughs> or doesn't all hold together, you give it more leeway because it's like, well, it's their. F- the thing it's like Eraserhead isn't to me as good as Blue Velvet but you go well it's, it makes sense for where we go from here or Harmony Kareen's movies like Trash Humpers is no uh, spring, breakers. spring Breakers right I was, I was about to say it took him like five he had to go up to the, the mound like five times to actually hit something out of the park but uh, uh, yeah I mean wasn't Tom Hanks's first movie that thing you do and that's a pretty fine piece of business I, I think it's uh, mm. 
And well, but, was but that see, okay, bizarre for to Tom play, Hanks to do, though? To play devil's advocate, <laughs> I think that, yeah, that thing you do lines up with the persona that Tom Hanks brings to a project. If you hear it written and directed That's by Tom fair. Hanks, it's like, oh, of course. Uh, with that accurate, yeah, I mean, I, I did bring that baggage. Just, uh, you know, when, when the movie got really weird, I... Uh, you know, it's on my notes. I'm like, oh, this is what we're doing. This is from the mind of Dan Aykroyd. That's and then after I was done with the movie, I watched the the video. You know that Ryan linked to, and I'm like, oh, it makes sense because you know I didn't know that his original ideas for Ghostbusters and like, you know that they were so out there, and then uh, uh, they had to bring. Uh, Ivan Reitman to do rewrites and actually make it into a movie that could be made instead of the the, the complete lunacy that was coming out of Dan Aykroyd's head. So it's I, I I think that yeah the movie can if you're familiar with Dan Aykroyd as an actor or, or as a writer even you know it's there is an experience that you're having while watching it that somebody who doesn't know him doesn't. But in the end, I think that the movie overpowers all that because. Uh, if you like, whether you, you know, if you like or dislike, let's say, Chevy Chase's performance, that's going to prevail over how you feel about that accurate directing the movie. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't enjoy, yeah. in my case, I didn't enjoy Chevy Chase's performance, and that had nothing to do with what Dan accurate was doing or what I knew of that accurate. It was just that, oh, he's supposed to be funny. He's not making me laugh. And if I saw that type of performance in a movie from another director, I would also feel the same way. Like, I, I think that the 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 knowledge of a, a filmmaker's trajectory definitely sets up your expectations, but at some point, <laughs> the movie sinks or swims depending on how it's executed, you know, and your own sensibility. So uh, I think that on a bigger canvas, yeah. it probably would have helped if that Aykroyd's first movie was more in line with what audiences expected as far as, you know, financial success. Or or you don't give him the biggest budget in the world and expect it <laughs> yes. to be a rival against fucking, like, big budget studio movies. You give him a smaller budget and you treat it like what it is, which is, it's, an, I don't know, and again, I'm not joking, this is more of an art film. Like, this is a film where it has a very clear artistic voice and vision, which it does not fail at like it's not mainstream you yeah. know yeah it's not mainstream and you know after watching it that it achieved everything it set out to achieve but what it wants to do is unconventional and so you put it in the playground with real big <laughs> movies that do the conventional it's going to be looked upon very differently. Yeah, even to go back to what your David Lynch comparison there, like that's a director who dreams are a really big part of, you know, his work and the fact in the trivia, it almost comes across like a joke because like, oh, that's the reason behind the craziness. But the fact that, you know, Dan Aykroyd did base a lot of this on his dreams really does add to the vision of the film. And this is his first directorial debut. Like, this is his first director thing. If he had directed a bunch of comedies before this, I don't know if this would still destroy his career because he had had experience in the industry. So you can go different. Like, Michael Bay can make pain and gain whilst doing his Transformers <laughs> movies because he's been a success in the industry for how long at that point? Like 20 years? You have to build up well, to Dan it. Well, Dan Aykroyd, it's... Yeah, there's a build-up. You can do your weird little shit, but if you are going to be one of these filmmakers, like your Harmony Kareen or your Robert Eggers or your David Lynch or whatever weird, abstract, other, like, outside of the the norm, you you, you can't just throw it into the party with all of the normal films like this one did. Like, <laughs> it has everyone in it. Like, everyone's here. And that's amazing. Like, I appraise it for that. But again, I do think, I wonder, 
if this was in the hands of some filmmaker who has been established and praised for being weird and it's still made the exact same with the exact same people, I don't know if we'd have this conversation as strongly, but there is that element of, it's Dan Aykroyd, Ghostbusters man, and he's getting to do whatever he wants and he's a weird comedy guy and now we get to see that he's also like obsessed with other odd little things. I don't know, I think there's something in amongst all of that that makes it a disconnect for myself as somebody who's a fan of this movie. I do ponder going, you know, if I do mean that like if someone like Harmony Kareen made a movie like this, would we even talk about it in the same way? No, probably not. Because that's what he does. Yep. You sure are a gaggle of musicians, sure enough. <laughs> everything everything you said, I don't know if you realize this right you were you were explaining house of a thousand corpses <laughs> like that's like that's the example of you know a studio taking a chance on a first-time director but not giving him the bank it's just like universal was like all right here's seven million dollars make your little movie and mm-hmm. we'll see what we can do with it and of course what happened was they were like uh yeah we're not going to release this so find another studio to do it and then you know he ended up making 20 million off of it or whatever but that's like the to your point it's like I mean, I I think House of a Thousand Corpses is good, but uh, a lot of people, if you can find them, they're rare. Where you engage them in conversation about the you know Rob Zombie's movies, that that's one of the things that well, the the kind of excuse laden uh, reviews that you're kind of referencing here. That's a lot of that. It's like oh, he was finding himself and stuff like that. And I think there's validity to what you said about Dan Aykroyd's directorial debut, Warner Brothers, like, here's $40 million, and we're going to release you on a big weekend. Hope it does good. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't think this movie's as good as you do. I think there's elements to it that I, I can't get past the fat babies, man. I'm just like... <laughs> That's wh- wh- the thing wh- that you're hung up wh- on, because I, to me, it's Chevy Chase. <laughs> well, it's not like I'm hung up on it. It's like, that's to me, those those felt like Jar Jar Binks of like, we're going to make <laughs> toys for this, so we got to have these characters. Uh, I think one of the points of this, it, it, we joked about it, and yeah, Dan Aykroyd's kind of out there with some of the things he believes and like thoughts that he has. and um, But from everything I've ever read and everything I know, Obviously, I'm not his biographer, but like, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily hard to work with. No, he's a delight. Well, that's kind of the interesting thing, because from that same class, you know, the 75 SNL crew, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase are supposed to be just knowing, like, people enter into working with them knowing that they're nightmares. And that's one of the things I read, that this was no different. Chevy was a fucking prick on the set of this movie. And... That's weird and kind of fascinating in its own way. I think obviously the tide has turned and there's no really people don't really allow the argument that they're an artist. So let them work the way they do anymore. You have to be nice. That's like the thing. But in the time period, the 30 years that fell from the premiere of Saturday Night Live, you hear of a lot more movies that have Chevy Chase and Bill Murray at the helm than you do Dan Aykroyd. And obviously he did more writing and shit like that, but it's just he was kind of interesting. He was Go a ahead. writer. He was a writer. So when they had him on SNL, he was never an actor, but they brought him in because he was really funny in person. So 
that even gives a bigger jigsaw puzzle piece to Nothing But Trouble, which is you've had a guy who's been wanting to be behind the scenes, somebody who writes the things and maybe even directs, but he's been shoved into the spotlight of the actor because, well, everyone thinks he's really funny in person, so you should have him on the camera. So you've had in that stable of actors the one who's like, I'm a writer at heart and I'm going to do my movie and nobody else wants to direct it, so I'll direct it. Nobody else wants to play Bobo, I'll play Bobo. Like Because it's like, this has to be done and since nobody's willing to help me in these departments, I'll just do it myself because it's quicker, easier, and I know what I want. That makes sense for his audition tape now. Like I've seen that where he just kind of goes out, he's like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, Which I thought was like part of it because if you watch Andy Kaufman's SNL <laughs> fucking audition he goes out and he just sits and he stares at the camera and he waits for someone to tell him what to do <laughs> but uh i say still my point remains of like they they had coming off of that the same level of notoriety i think it was bill murray and chevy did caddyshack and that was kind of boing like sprung him into a different stratosphere but you would have thought he maybe it was a lack of or a, a factor, not a lack of, maybe it was a factor of he just kind of wanted to pick and choose what he did. But my point being, he seems to be cool to work with when they are like notorious dickheads and constantly had work in the 30 years that followed. And I, I don't know if this movie had much to do with it where he became like kind of persona non grata afterwards, but it's just kind of one of the things I found myself daydreaming about when I was watching this. Yeah. Well, he's him and uh, John Candy and Rick Moranis were always considered the nice ones of that group. And, Two of those people have faded from the business because the business is cruel and it's money driven and there's no desire for you to have artistic liberties. So go away and only come back if you're in a Ghostbusters outfit, Dan. That's all we want you for. Or you're a minor character in Christmas with the Cranks or <laughs> Gross Point Blank. That's what we need. Well, hold you on for. now. He was Britney Spears' dad in Crossroads, yep. goddammit. Yeah, that's not, a, that's not a lead role, though, is it? It's a role. No. It's he the was in the It's the role. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> that movie. He He's like king shit of fuck mountain in that movie, <laughs> except for the scene with Kim Cattrall, where she's Britney Spears' long-lost mother. But anyway, uh, I, I stand by my the the making of and, like, the idea of this movie is more fascinating than what actually ended up on film. Bartek, I haven't heard much from you when it comes to all of this. And I know you, uh, like me, you're just fascinated by Dan Aykroyd's charm. Yeah, I've been meaning to uh, jump in on the Aykroyd talk. So when we, before we did uh, Nothing But Trouble on Unappreciated Masterpieces all the way back in like, what was it, 2016, mm. um, my idea of Dan Aykroyd, I hadn't seen everything that he's been in, you know, big things that I haven't seen, there's some small things, but he was just a name that I recognized, and whenever I saw him in something, he's like, oh yeah, usually the things that I'd seen him in have been fun things, like, you know, Blues Brothers, he's Elwood, um, I have seen Spies Like Us, but it was when I was really young, so I don't quite remember, um, but it was always someone who I associated, you know, like, oh, funny guy, so must be, you know, very talented. Um, and so when we got around to doing nothing but trouble, around that time, you know, Ryan, you started introducing me to like, oh, this is like 
who he kind of is in real life. You know, he's got all these eccentricities. He's the descendant of like a real life paranormal expert. Like I think it's his father or grandfather was like really into go like properly into ghosts and like and is an expert in the field and wrote novels and books about it. I completely it, yeah. forgot about that until you told me that just now. But yeah, just all these like really interesting things and you know all of these background elements leading into directorial debut where you really got to see like the real person. And, you know, if you just see and forget about this film or you just don't know it exists and you just look at like the main noteworthy other things that Dan Aykroyd is in, you know, you get to 2016 Bartek who doesn't realize that, hey, this is a guy who has a lot of really interesting things about him and given, you know, an infinite budget and able to do whatever he wants, this is really what you would expect from this man. Evening, troopers! Can't go too far in this part of the world without running across my friends! Uh, yeah, I think there's some things to sit on. As always, when we record with y'all, Ryan says things that, like, in the moment I don't have a response for, but I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, ah, gotcha. It happens sometimes, uh, yeah. What, man? I just use my brain and the words come out. What can I say? I mean, one of the things I was curious to hear from from you two since you're, you know, first-time viewers of this was the weirdness. Was that the off-putting fact? Was that an off an, an actual off-putting factor, or did that become a part of the charm? Because I know many people like Roger Ebert is like, this movie's too fucking weird and stupid, and that's bad. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the weirdness. Like I, I just found some of it disjointed, and like some of the humor didn't land with me. That was kind of it. And I really enjoyed like the first, like the building to like the reveal of the judge of cause, cause I was kind of like, well, what? Cause I'd seen the poster. So I was like, how does fucking ghouly <laughs> Dan Aykroyd factor into this? So yeah, I, um, I don't have a problem with the weirdness. I appreciated the weirdness once it showed up. <laughs> it's quite the ride and we've gone on quite the ride. I, I think. think it's, it's time <laughs> to uh, reduce our complex feelings <laughs> to a very simplistic number or just way of measuring <laughs> Uh, quality yeah julio you want to kick us off uh i i'm giving this movie an enthusiastic two stars enthusiastic in the sense that you know unlike rotten tomatoes i'm not gonna put like a green splotch on it and then just let you believe that this is just a bad movie you need to stay away from no i give it two stars and then make the notation that this is a movie i absolutely believe you need to watch um just for you know the sake of experiencing it and then you can make up your mind maybe you're you're like Ryan and you enjoy it a lot or maybe you're like me and you're like I don't think it's funny but it's still worth watching yeah that i two stars is where i land on letterbox so i'd give this a, a c but i would present it with the idea that like uh just what we've talked about there's an interesting story there and like what you're watching is one, a reminder of what filmmaking was at the point in time. It's kind of like a time capsule in every good way. Uh, and two, just kind of shot for the stars, but could have used some, uh, some assistance along the, on the voyage up there. Uh, Bartek, well, we know Ryan's the, the, the lover of this, so we'll, we'll finish with him, but Bartek, <laughs> uh, where, where did you settle on this Le- letter grade stars, number, whatever Color. you want to give it. Uh, all of the above is stuff that I don't like. So no, I, I just fall under, I recommend this film. 
Um, there is, you know, enjoyment to be had because it is just a fascinating ride. And it's definitely one that, you know, the more you read up about it, the more you talk about it, it just gets more and more interesting. So I, I just think this is a fun experience that is worth checking out. It's not a film that you just put on and then put down. It's one where it doesn't make you think about whether it is why did they make these choices or how did this get made or just the characters or the people who are involved in it. Like, oh my God, I never thought John Candy would be in a movie like this. You know, it's it's odd. It's odd like that where it's like you have these people doing things like Demi Moore fresh off of Ghost digital underground are in this movie we got a bold win we got it's a strange concoction i enjoy it very much i would uh recommend it it's not a film that i expect people to enjoy but it is it is its own thing and it does have an interesting place in film history uh unlike roger ebert i'm not going to tell a bunch of teenagers to talk louder (laughs) in the cinema while it's on i Rated on my system of yum being bad or yum yum being good because I host a podcast called Yum Yum Podcast and I give this an enthusiastic yum yum. Seconds, please. Hold hold, hold the harvest. There is another matter before the Shire Court this evening and, uh, well, you all might be able to help. Well, before we head out, before we exit the real talk room, uh, do you guys want to give us one final plug for, uh, for your show? Well, Spin Polish Presents, we talk about movies. We've talked about lots and lots of movies, whether they be unappreciated films, whether they be acclaimed, whether they be foreign or American or Australian. You can find uh, our show, our podcast, on whatever podcast hosting site you use, as well as YouTube even. And we're on those social medias of Facebook and Twitter under Spit and Polish Presents. You can occasionally see us interacting with people, telling uh, Alex to watch a thing, and then he watches it and says, oh, that was weird, guys. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the other one, Yum Yum Podcast. Um, uh, you can listen to what Ryan says next about how to listen to that one. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, Yum Yum Podcast. My wife and I are watching science fiction television shows, and that, again, is also found on all of the podcast hosting sites. Yum Yum Podcast. All the social media is available for that. So hop on over. You can see me interact with uh, Julio on the social media by saying, watch Babylon 5. I have watch like it. seven episodes it. left. And then... And then, I don't know, Ryan's going to have to give me different kind of homework once I'm done with the... Oh, I guess then I need to catch up with Discovery. So, it's good. This, is yes. com- this episode's coming out early December, right? Yeah, so he's still not going to watch it by then. Okay. Around that he's, time... He's been holding these seven episodes for like four months. <laughs> Around that time, I'm going to be on Yum Yum, right? Somewhere yeah. there about? Bartek's been on my Yum Yum podcast. He's had opinions on Babylon 5 and... Uh, uh, Julio, you've been on there too. Yeah, so yeah. You've with shared opinions some of my opinions own. about Star Trek and Babylon we Five, both like once a season, men. Yes, yes, nice. All right, well, that's going to wrap up nothing but trouble, Julio. What's on deck next, Alex? We're going to close the year with uh, one final patron pick. Uh, this is coming from Jordan Mans, who picked the movie Kin. It's a 2018 release, and that's all I can tell you about it. <laughs> Well, and I can tell you it's 35% of Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, I guess we'll find out what if it's kin as in like family or kin as a, a first name. I don't know. I, I don't know anything about it. I look forward to watching it and mm. then defending it uh, as if it was good. 
I know what kin is, so I'll be keen to hear what you have to say. Ooh, is it an Australian movie? Is it weird? You'll have to find out. You'll have to find out, guys. <laughs> this is Star Dan Brian Aykroyd. had a very big smile on his face when you mentioned the name of the film. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's, that's in our future. Um, Alex, get us out of here. All right, so we'll move into our perennial plugs. We start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. And also a shout out to our boys at the Late Night Grin. Be sure to head over to their Twitter account at Late Night Grin. Uh, just had a, I mean, this is obviously in the future, but we had a, a great few sessions this week on there. They help promote uh, our podcast, so we'll do the same for them. A lot of movies, wrestling, that type of thing. Joe. Shoot, Rob, Oracle. God bless. Love y'all. See you soon. Julio, who designs our beautiful logo? Our beautiful logo and all its iterations uh, comes from the mind of Hans Rodgieser. He's like Dan Aykroyd. He just he just goes wild when his creativity strikes. Uh, he is a fellow podcaster as well. He has two podcasts, Tassium Combi, which is about proving current affairs, and Marginal, which is about the economy. He has a website where you can check out all his work, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. You can reach out to him on Twitter, at Mildemonios. Tell him that you like his art, that you like his shows, that you like his writing. He has a bunch of zombie novels that he's written. Um, or you can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Hans, thank you for all your support. And thank you to the support and effort of Ms. Zoe Perez, our social media guru, czar. Uh, Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime, at Contrarian Prime on Instagram, YouTube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, Twitter, at Contrarian Prime, as you know. Uh, that's where you can find us. Uh, Zoe helps out with our videos, graphics, uh, posts in general. Uh, does a lot of good work for us, and we appreciate the effort and uh, the quality she gives It's a lot of times better than anything I could do. So, Zoe, thank you for your continued effort. Uh, thank you to Ryan. Thank you to Bartek. Thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. This summer of 1999.